We've spent the last 10 months or so, this calendar year, looking at the first book of the New Testament. It is an eyewitness account. It's a recording from a disciple of Jesus. And he describes who Jesus is and what he said and what he did. Not only that, but where he found himself in relationship to the religious order of the day, all the way up through his atoning death, the wonder and the glory of his resurrection, the sending of the Spirit to the church and for its mission. And all of this has been taking place in Matthew. And where we are now is right about smack dab in the middle. Matthew 13, when we're finished with it, we will be halfway through this gospel. Matthew 13 is a, this is going to sound funny, it's a special chapter, much like all of the Bible is special. But you may particularly remember some of the contours of this particular book because it reads a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Those who are even unfamiliar with Jesus probably knew his words. They understood the context of what he said in those chapters. So Matthew 13 is perhaps the second most known teaching segment of this whole book. We are going to discover in the 13th chapter of Matthew parables. Matthew took probably was a common way that Jesus taught, and he piled them up all together, and they stacked up here in the 13th chapter. And we're going to begin by looking at the parable of the sower. So the parable of the sower. Now I'm going to read the first 23 verses of Matthew 13. A couple things to look for. We are not going to be able to spend a lot of this morning considering parables. So verses 10 to 17, we're going to read it, but we're going to come back because later in the same chapter, Jesus readdresses this concept, this idea of why does he teach in parables. But what we're going to be looking for are the kinds of soil that Jesus describes in the giving out of his word. These great crowds came to him. So we're going to look together from the first verse of Matthew 13, read down through 23, and then we'll pray for a moment together. It says, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. He told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. The birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, 
for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear, then, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Let's pray just for a moment. Father, thank you for speaking. You are holy and set apart and other, but you have given us your word. That's been the confession of your people, your church down through the ages, and we confess and depend on it here now. My opinions and thoughts certainly are not going to carry the day nor help anyone, but your word is living and active. We thank you, Jesus, for teaching, for the parables that you've given. And I ask that we would be given that good gift, the miraculous gift of eyes that see and ears that hear. We pray for that gift now. Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how you are with farming. You good? Is it going well? There was a picture in my grandparents' back room where we used to stay over and we'd spend the night, and it was two little boys dressed up like farmers, probably two years old, standing, looking at one another with little hats, and the one boy says to the other, you've been farming long? And it was cute because, of course, they were two. But the other great reality of that picture is that for many children, by the time they were two, they were already exposed to very, very much farming. For much of America, in fact, for much of the world over, for the longest period of human history, the idea of pulling a livelihood and an expectation that you would eat or starve based on what was produced from the soil was much more prevalent I have never been much of a farmer nor gardener in my life. I do think sometimes if I were forced to just look at a plot of land and somehow pull my food from it, if I could even remotely survive for one year. Though I grew up on a farm, I grew up right next door to my grandfather's grain bins, tractors, and his whole setup, which was only a few hundred yards from where his great-grandfather had first immigrated, a farmland that was later split down the middle by an interstate. Though I grew up around this, by the time I worked some or hung out with my grandfather, there was already an entire generation, my parents' generation, that were starting to step away from farming. 
The idea of pulling something from the land, either as a livelihood or to scratch out a living for the future and the lifeblood of your family, was beginning to be lost. I distinctly remember times with my grandpa just not getting it. I didn't have the gene to sit in the tractor in the hot sun for hour after hour after hour, sometime when I was close to 10. I remember asking him, just longing to take a nap and looking out in the front of the combine and there was a huge flat area in the front and saying, Grandpa, could you stop? Could I just lay down right there? And spending the rest of the afternoon just laying in the sun while he went through the field. I did not have a green thumb, nor did I inherit an ability to pull things from soil. My wife is better than I am. She gardens some. And in a moment, we're going to see that what gets produced out of the soil, I am not great at it, my wife a little bit better, that sometimes you get the joy of realizing that fruit comes from soil. We had one glaring victory in gardening that I recall. We had planted a small little garden in the backyard of our townhome that we had. And in that little plot, we had thrown in some tomato seeds. And over the course of time, I beamed, though barely any of it was my fault. I beamed with joy to watch the growth coming up from these tomato plants. Until a few months into it, I remember thinking to myself that we would have a a harvest, a feast of tomatoes that I would not eat. But the idea would be that they were there if, if you needed them to survive. And then a little bit later, I noticed one time going out that not only was there this garden there, but I saw a bunny rabbit going along the fence. And I just thought, I am full on living in like an Anne of Green Gables novel or some kind of, we are country folk, is what I thought. A few days later, I noticed not one rabbit, but two. And then about a week later after that, I saw a little tiny rabbit and I thought, what in the world is going on? And we began to look into, and the fruitfulness and the overwhelming vine fest that was our tomato section of the garden, we realized that down in the middle of it, if you dug through things, there was an entire ecosystem, a family of rabbits living and thriving, handfuls of bunnies jumping about. We had created a zoo inside the fruitfulness of these Plants that came up out of the soil. And that was both joyful, hilarious, and a little disturbing. What do you do with a family of rabbits, right? Point being, all of us can probably imagine the wonder and the miracle that it is to plant seeds and have nothing come and to plant seeds and have ecosystems come. And Jesus is going to borrow, though many of us have been removed, and we don't work in farming anymore, many of us are removed. Jesus was taking one of the most common practices of the day in order to teach about his kingdom and about what he was to do in the world. And so one of our tasks now, as we look down at Matthew 13, is of course to consider this parable, the parable of the sower. That's where it starts. But before that, I want to give a very brief definition of parables so we understand them, how we're going to use them. We won't get fully into this prophecy that he mentions from Isaiah. Again, we'll come back to it later because it's a whole chapter full of parables. But we're going to try to define parable, and then we're going to look at the four soils that Jesus mentions. Those four soils would be this. First soil is no soil. There's no soil. There's rocky soil. There's mixed soil. And then there's good soil. And Jesus will explain each of these. And the hope would be that we are those who have eyes and ears. 
Now, the first thing to do is to consider the context of this. Jesus goes out. It says he went out of the house. Remember, he's been in conflict. He's been in teaching. He's been doing miracles. It says he went out of the house and he sat by the sea. He's probably tired, perhaps just wants to get away for a moment. It doesn't say that he went there with the intent of drawing a crowd. He's maybe like a parent who just wants a few minutes of quiet. But like children, the great crowds come. They gather in about, about him. They're needy for Jesus. It says the whole crowd stood on the beach such that he ended up having to get in a boat and go out to create a sort of impromptu amphitheater. And it says that he told them many things in parables. So the first thing we might say to ourselves is, well, what is a parable? A parable has been defined. I'm just going to borrow one definition from a commentary writer named Michael Green. He says, a parable is a comparison of two subjects for the purpose of teaching. It's a comparison. We're going to come back to that idea in a moment. It's a comparison of two subjects for the purpose of teaching. He says it proceeds from the known to the unknown. And then perhaps more pointed about what a parable is and how is it different from regular teaching is this. It is often an everyday story with a spiritual meaning. A parable is not an allegory. As if every detail in the story had deep spiritual significance. So every detail is not important, but the point of the story is, Green says that in a parable there is generally, not universally, but generally speaking, one salient point. The very definition of the word parable in Greek, it puts two concepts together, but the basic idea is this, alongside truth. It's to throw something alongside To help us to understand the unknown by what is known. Imagine a five-year-old, and you tell him, go out and gather sticks from the woods, and we need straight ones. And he comes back with a whole armful of sticks, and he says, I know what the sticks were, but what's straight? What does that mean? And so in order to show him and to see which sticks are going to work or not, you take a straight board, maybe even a, one of those straight edge things for carpenters use, and you throw that down on the ground and you say, all right, put the sticks alongside and you'll see. The idea is, is that he knows what a stick is, and then you take something that's unknown, this idea of straight, you set them alongside one another, and now light begins to come. Jesus has a task, a very difficult task. He is trying to explain to those who are around him what it means that he is the Son of Man. What does it mean that he's the Son of God? You know, it took the church some two to three hundred years to get the wording right on exactly who Jesus is and how this all works. But perhaps more than that, and I believe this is the one salient point of a parable, of this parable, is Jesus is intending to explain how it is that the kingdom is here, but there is such a mixed response. There are people who are plotting his death, and there are people who are rushing and forcing him into a boat into the sea. And there is everything in between. And so it may very well be that those who are crowded around him are beginning to wonder, how can there be such a mixed response to Jesus? And he tells this story. He tells this parable to describe what it's like for those who interact with him to either respond or not respond. In other words, they might be saying something like this. How is it that sometimes the seed goes into the ground 
and nothing happens. And other times a seed goes into the ground and a whole army of rabbits gets to live in there. There's a massively different response going on here. One warning about parables. First, they, I guess they should be rejoiced in. Before the warning, they should be rejoiced in because parables are often the most exciting parts or the most fun parts of teaching. Jesus gathers up all of life to explain truth. It's not compartmentalized. He's often creative and thoughtful. I love that a crowd comes to him, this great spiritual teacher, and he says, a sower went out to sow. So parables should be received, but we should be careful as well. And here's the warning. A parable is given to make a point. It is not to be dissected or to be given an autopsy down to the measure of meaning of every single jot and tittle. In fact, I think that's probably what the Pharisees and scribes were most guilty of. They were those who were so invested down into the letter of the law that they missed the whole point. And sometimes when you're considering parables, you can be that person. You can be the kind of person who ends up spending hours and hours and hours trying to figure out exactly what the bird signifies and never get around to the main point that Jesus is trying to make. You might be that person in your friend group who's extremely semantic, who loves to get things precise, who never contributes anything to the actual conversation, just wants to point out all the things that might be a little bit wrong. Are you that person sometimes? You're the kind of person who says, let's say I'm making a point and I want to describe how hot something is. I'm like, look, this thing is hot. You don't want to touch that? Like, like a million degrees, like the surface of the sun. I mean, I touched this thing and it was crazy. And there's a person who doesn't dive into the heat conversation at all. They just say something like this. Uh, actually, the surface of the sun is not one million degrees. It's 412 Kelvin. And that's enough to burn out. You know what I mean? There could become a point where someone just wants to talk about the side trails and misses the point. Let's not miss the point with the parable. Let's keep in mind the soils. Jesus does explain them. But let's keep in, the, in, in view this idea. There are some who respond to Jesus with great joy and fruitfulness. and Some who reject him. And why is this and how does it work? So here's what he says. First is, a sower goes out to sow. Note that Jesus compares himself to a sower. I love the simplicity of this. He doesn't say, Alexander the Great went out to conquer. He says, no, a sower went out to sow. Something simple, again, an everyday story, can have a basic meaning. The idea of sowing is that he would throw seeds into the ground. Apparently in farming in this day and age, they would sow the seeds first, throw the seeds down first, and then come back after and plow. I guess the thinking at this time was the seeds would be on the ground, then you mix up the ground, and eventually the seeds would get mixed in with the ground and grow. Nowadays, you prepare the ground first, so there's not as much random sowing of seed. It's just like right down there in the row that you made. But the picture here is that a sower goes along, and he's got his seed bag, and he's going to throw out seed wherever they hope to find fruitfulness. And Jesus says that there's a few different kinds of soil. One we called no soil. They fell on a path, never really got, even got into the soil. They come and are devoured. The second is there's a rocky kind of soil. And then third, we said that there's a soil that's mixed. It has thorns in it already. In other words, it's spoken for. And then finally, he just calls it good soil. So let's walk through these and see how he describes them. Because Jesus gives us a gift. He interprets his own parable. He says, there is a no soil kind of home that the seed finds. 
He says, sometimes there are people who hear the word of the kingdom and don't understand it. So the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. This is what was sown along the path. The idea here is that there are those who are so hardened of heart, perhaps a path where people would walk through the the field. The idea is, is that you can walk along and create a kind of road, a sort of gravel where the seed has no chance to get into the ground. Jesus brings up a spiritual understanding here. He says, the evil one comes and snatches it away. There's a hardness of heart such that you are no longer able to receive nor hear what is given. He explains that the seed is the word of the kingdom. This good news that he's coming to proclaim. That the power, the thing that brings life is this word that's sown. And the warning here is that there are some who have such a hardness of heart. They are maybe what the scripture calls scoffers. People with a settled predisposition. That they have no need of God. They don't want to be interrupted by Him. They think that anyone who even entertains these thoughts for a minute is a total idiot. Someone who has no understanding. The reality is, Jesus says, that these people show that they are hardened of heart to the point that they cannot receive it. Now, so far, this is very straightforward and simple. You can imagine people like this. You can imagine people who have a a steady and an ongoing sturdy stance opposed to any word of truth. And Jesus says there are those who are like that. There is no one questioning, yeah, but why aren't they in the kingdom? Are they in the kingdom? Is the kingdom with them or not? The answer is no. So of the soils so far, we can check this one off and say, I can imagine that. There's a spiritual warfare through a hardening of heart mixed with a a spiritual battle. The word of God does not even get a hearing with them. It's just over. What's going to happen next in the next two soils is a bit more subtle and is going to cause a bit of consternation perhaps. Because Jesus describes the next kind of soil. No soil obvious. They are not a part of the kingdom. They've rejected it. But then he says there's a different kind of soil. He says, what was sown on rocky ground in verse 20, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Now in my Bible, there's a comma there and that makes a huge difference. If there was a period, we would all just high five. Because verse 20 says that the seed goes out, this word of the kingdom goes out and someone hears it and receives it. And not only receives it, but they receive it immediately. They are up for this. They don't need to be cajoled. They don't need to be convinced. Page one, sign on the dotted line, I'm in. Furthermore, they not only receive it and do so immediately, but it says they receive it with joy. They are happy about this. They're the kind of person who says, yes, I see it. I get it. When can we do this? Let's do this now. I'm pumped. They're up for it kind of people. But Jesus has a further lesson for us in this soil. Because it's not a period at the end of verse 20. It's a comma. It goes on to verse 21. Yet he has no root in himself. But endures for a while when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. Immediately he falls away. This person is as immediate in falling as they were in rising. So the question becomes, what do we make of people like this? How are we to understand The reality of someone receiving the word immediately, but then having no root. Jesus says that phrase three times. First in the saying of the parable itself, and then in explaining it. What what does it mean for a plant to have no root? Well, it means it's dead or on its way to dying. 
was thinking, what kind of plant looks really, really, really great, but has no root? Well, I guess like a fake house plant. You ever gone through someone's house or maybe in your own house, you go through it and, and you see something, you say like, wow, your flowers are amazing. And only you know that it's a fake one. You just bought it Hobby Lobby or something. And you walk over to that thing and you can just pick it up and it's plastic, no root. It has all the outward appearance of life, but no root indicates no sustenance, no investment, no foundation. And it's only a matter of time. Where the person who receives, whatever they thought they understood or saw, would receive this word, then eventually that word, the very thing they thought they received, perhaps someone says, boy, I love the community that Christianity offers. I've been meaning to be around some people. Or, you know, I've always loved to sing. I love the singing. Or I like the idea of the offer of forgiveness of sins or whatever it is. There's some benefit perceived and they receive it with joy. But eventually they realize that this word is going to insist on digging down into the soil of their soul. It's going to ask something of them. It perhaps comes with a cost. And the costliness of the word eventually means they say, I'm out. Now, I told you that perhaps the disciples were trying to figure out what was happening. What do they make of the crowds and the people who come by night? And what do you do with the Pharisees and the scribes who pressed away? The reality is is that for many of us, we probably ask similar questions. What about so-and-so? I remember in college, we used to pray together all the time. What about my aunt? I remember she came to know Jesus at the camp thing and then she was baptized, but I haven't seen her for like six years. What, what do we make of these people? And immediately we begin to see that these other soils start to add some discerning, perhaps even some confusion into the mix. The reality is when I read a passage like this, I can put names and faces into the mix. I can recall people that we have baptized in that very tub who came with joy and received the promise of the gospel and endured for a while and then just as quickly were gone. And Jesus teaches that this is a common practice. It should be something that's understood. It doesn't make it any easier to understand. It makes it difficult for those of us who have seen this kind of thing. But the reality is, is that those who appear to or have received the word never truly were planted. They were never allowing or never to the point where the seed of the word of the kingdom took root in a soul. They saw some of the benefits, tried it on for a while. Maybe they'd gone through a thousand phases in life and thought, why not a Christianity phase? And ultimately, it was their lack of endurance through difficulty and cost that led them to fall away. These are some of the most difficult cases for those of us who love people and pray for souls and want God to change and to hold and to care for His image bearers. This idea of not enduring seems to be the one factor 
on the three soils who are not commended compared to the one soil that does. This idea of not enduring. The no-soil person, well, they didn't endure. It never even got there. The bird came and snatched it. The rocky soil person did not endure. That seems to be the point. And it ends up that one of the great evidences that we have about whether someone ever actually was in Christ, rooted in Him, and had the life of the Spirit, is whether or not they endure. The Apostle John often writes about this. John is big on relationship and fruit and abiding. He's also big on community. You know, John is called the beloved disciple. I think if we were going to put him in today's day and age, like with a counselor, they would say that John had high EQ. Have you heard of this before? I think of all the disciples, and I know you can make stereotypes, but we'll just say there's a few other ones who maybe had less of this kind of thing. John seemed to be in tune with what was happening in the community. And he knows that like the disciples, they may have been asking questions in the early church. Like, what about Zacchaeus, or making up a name? How did they fall away so quickly? And listen to what John writes in 1 John chapter 2. This is in the, nearing the end of his life. Wise pastoral John. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. This idea of endurance, continued with us. That's the phrase I believe John's pulling from and learned from Jesus. But he goes on and he says, But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The idea that John teaches here is essentially this. These difficult cases of rocky soil and then of mixed soil and and sort of thorny soil is not a story of someone who was a Christian and then managed to jump their way out and then jump back in and jump their way out as though God were having to continually revise the Lamb's book of life. No, John says... Though we don't know totally from our perspective, when we see and let things settle out over the long haul, it is endurance, and in this case, the lack of endurance, that lets us know that this person was never truly in to begin with. Notice he says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. He says that they were there, they were in the mix, but ultimately proved to be false disciples because of their lack of endurance. Now, this is, in some ways, a simplified, and in other ways, a complexified, if that's a word, way to to think about this. And I know what you're going to begin to think right away, because we're going to see it again here in the next soil. The idea of someone who hears the word and stays for a while, and the cares choke it out, and it dies, you may begin to start to think something like this. So you're telling me that it's possible to be in a path of pretending And that eventually you could end up being not Christian and just out? Are you telling me that that's possible? That maybe like right here in this room that we're not really sure and how does this work and you start to get suspicious and looking around at other people because maybe you're sure of yourself. And you say to yourself, well, what are we supposed to do with this? We need to to determine this right now. The church needs to be pure. And a couple of things about that. First, I think you're probably thinking correctly. Because you know what the next parable is? Jesus teaches concerning the mixed nature of the church. And he says, I know there's wheat and there's tares and you're going to be worried about the harvest and who's going to separate and how do we know? And he knows that you're going to be thinking these kind of things. So the first thing is, 
I would say to you is, you're probably thinking correctly. That's an unsettling thought. But second, I would ask you to put your pitchforks away and to realize Jesus is going to tell us how to handle this. Your job is not to play vigilante church purifier, okay? No self-appointed sheriffs. We'll learn from Jesus in a little bit what to do. For now, let's not miss the point of the parable, which is that there will be miraculous and God-ordained differing responses to the word of the kingdom. And we're simply to observe this phenomenon. And perhaps you can see cases of it. So there is no soil, obvious out. Rocky soil, painful and shocking out. How does this happen and how do we explain it? He goes on from there though and he says that there is what we call mixed soil. And here Jesus says, that the word of the kingdom makes its way down into the soil of the soul. Perhaps even has some sustenance of the spirit trying to be fed, but ultimately it finds that it is not rooted, not attached, because this soil has mixed allegiances. There is a fighting and a vying for the affections of the heart that leaves The word, the seed of the gospel, this good thing that has been planted, ends up getting choked out. It's such a visceral phrase, choked out. But Jesus legitimately, if any of you have fought vines in your yards, Florida vines are the devil. I don't know if you've seen this, but anything living and fruitful in your yard, vines are coming to kill it, just so you know. And this is exactly what they do. The vine says, oh, nice, beautiful flowering bush you got there. Be a shame if I smothered it. But that's what's going to happen, is these vines are going to come and just smother it. And Jesus says that down in the heart, in the soul of a human being, if there are mixed allegiances, he says that it's the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. If you allow, maybe I'd say it this way, If you allow the world to shape the affections of your heart, if you allow voices outside of the Word of God to describe to you the contours and the intensity of your cares, that is life choking to the life of the Spirit inside of you. The idea here is that in order for the life of the kingdom to take root in the soul of someone, it needs to excavate and kick out the other allegiances. That rather than having your cares, the intensity and the contours of the cares defined by the world, the intensity and the contours of our cares should be defined by the word. Now, oftentimes there are overlaps. But we start with the word of the kingdom. It's interesting that Jesus says the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. Riches are deceitful. He personifies them there. They lie. The things that are offered in life will lie to you. And so prove to be unfruitful. The ultimate example of not enduring in the faith is to be unfruitful, to not produce the intended life and blessing that comes from those who are rooted in God. And so, like the first or the rocky soil, the mixed soil, the implication here is that being choked out and unfruitful means death, means gone, means 
outside of the kingdom. Again, John 15, verse 6. John makes things clear relationally. Where do people stand? He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and thrown to the fire and burned. John 15 describes for us branches that are unfruitful. And they are eventually pruned. And finally, Jesus gets to what he calls good soil. Good soil. And there is a miracle behind good soil. We're going to come back to it later, but he says, Blessed are your eyes, because these things have been given to you. The response necessary for the word that is planted is faith, but the context and the preparation for faith, this good soil, is up to God. It tells us that in this good soil, someone hears the word and understands it. And not just understands it in a, only an intellectual way, but understands what it requires, understands the rearranging of affections, understands the life-giving power, and rather than pushing back against the nutrients that this word of the kingdom needs, seeks to feed it. You see, the difference between someone who has a mixed soil and someone who has this good soil that Jesus describes is that a mixed soil person will begrudge the nutrients that the life of the kingdom requires will begrudge it and say, oh, this thing is so inconvenient. This life with Jesus is so inconvenient. It's always asking me to be generous and to be hospitable and to love my enemies and forgive people who have harmed me. This thing is so hard. I just want to be like everyone else. And the life of someone who is in good soil understands that true life, lasting life, not the deceitfulness of riches, but the promises of truth means that whatever nutrients are necessary for this life to be flourishing, we seek to water it. We do not begrudge the necessary nutrients of the kingdom, but rather fertilize and press in and pray, God, bring rain. And then Jesus says, this kind of good soil will indeed bear fruit. I think the idea is, is that we'll bear lasting fruit. Let me borrow from John again. John 15. I swear, John 15 is it's almost like it's the Apostle John's commentary in some ways on these passages. He says, John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And then this is the double promise of the gospel. Not only they would bear fruit, but that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. They will have fruit that lasts, fruit that remains, fruit that is kept. This is the kind of person, by feeding and receiving with understanding the nutrients necessary for the seed of the kingdom in their hearts, end up with unexplained, can't take credit for it, but unexplained tomato plant upon tomato plant to the point of bunny haven in their life. Now, a few observations about this kingdom parable that's been given. First, it is agrarian in nature. Note that there is nothing rushed about the situation. For having his life hunted, for having a cross to bear soon, Jesus was not in a hurry. A kingdom that is planted 
allows for the seasons to come and go, knowing that the good principles that have been given of life and death and season and harvest and planting and harvest are given by God and not to be rushed or fretted over. Good fruit, enduring good fruit, is a generational thing. We have a once replanted fruit tree in our backyard. It took seven years to get the first little, I don't know what it is, satsuma or something. I don't know. It's probably a grapefruit tree for all I know. I don't know what it is, but it, it took seven years. Seven years. Then it got replanted. That thing's still now second year in a row, not producing again. We should take comfort in the fact that the few good rhythms of life that God has given can be patient. Second, we should note that it is often as simple as a sowing of the seed. The sower is not responsible for the fruitfulness. The sower simply goes about his job saying, I am going to boldly do the thing that I am to do. And what's amazing is I love the miracles of the world, the little miracles of the world. It almost doesn't make any sense. Imagine a little kid coming to mom and saying, Mom, I'm starving. I've got nothing in my belly. I've been reading Grapes of Wrath. A lot of starving in that book. Spoiler. But the little girl comes and says, Mommy, I'm starving. I've got nothing in my belly. And the mom says, Okay, I know what to do. I'm going to love you well. And she reaches into a pocket of seeds and just walks out into a bunch of ground and goes like this. To an outside observer, they must say, You cruel woman. Provide for your daughter. What are you doing? And then she has to explain and say, well, I I didn't make it up, but here's how the world works. I take this little seed, and I can't see it, but there's life in here. There's sustenance in here. And then this is the, ready for it? Ready for it? I just, I, I do this. I didn't put a spell on them or anything. I just do this. And then God brings the sunshine, and the rain comes, and eventually that seed somehow eats the rain. I don't, I don't know. And then sunlight eventually causes some growth and fruit comes out. And so that eventually I'm going to have a huge harvest of blueberries. Blueberries that were once sunlight and water and soil and seed. And then I'm going to give that for the filling of my daughter's belly. You see, the reality here is that it takes a simple faith, not a fantastical one. You don't need to understand all of botany. You don't need to understand the life in the seed and how it all works. But Jesus says, you know, the kingdom is as simple as this. Sow seed. And there is life giving power. It's amazing to think sometimes... In our backyard, we have a, a concrete slab with like a basketball hoop there, and there's some trees right next to it, and I'm kind of worried because I know eventually what's going to happen is the root system of that tree is going to break up the concrete. Isn't that fascinating? You ever tried to punch concrete and break it? You know how hard it is to break concrete? You know what broke the concrete? A little tree seed. In one corner, 3,000 pounds of six-inch concrete And in the other corner, one small seed. You know who wins every time? The seed. There's life in the seed. There's life in the Word of God. This gospel of the kingdom is small, 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 but the miracle of the life of God is in it, and so we just faithfully sow. The life's not dependent on the sower. He didn't make it up, but it brings fruit nonetheless. 
I want to leave you with one passage from Philippians because you could be sitting here today and saying to yourself, well, now I'm a little worried. Anybody have a soil check system? How do I know? And I don't believe this parable is given for you to be worried. I think it's for you to rejoice over the hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold enduring fruit that is promised. Two reasons to be confident. One, Jesus includes the reality that not everyone is held to the same fruitfulness standard. You might know some hundredfold fruitful godly people. Everywhere they plant something or everything that they do seems to bring forth fruit. And you're over there nursing one small potato plant. And Jesus says, well, there's different yields. That's one reason to be encouraged. Be patient. It's agrarian. Be patient. There are different yields. And then finally, be confident because God's promise of the gospel is not only to forgive you, but to keep you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he says this to the Philippians church, to the church in Philippi. I'm sure they were discouraged. He says, I want you to know I'm sure of this. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. He is sure that God who has planted life will sustain it. Ultimately, our hope is not in our ability to identify our soil, but to anticipate the fruit of the life of God that's been planted by a receiving of the word. Let's pray together.